it as well. Let's just stay standing for the reading of God's word. And as Nicole comes up here um, to read this rather lengthy passage, just, um, we're, stay, we're staying standing just to set this time apart. There's nothing in scripture that says you have to stand when you read scripture, but just as we, when we're singing in worship, uh, standing and just praise, um, worship is a response to God's word. And, and as, as, as Nicole reads, um, this is, this is no less worship when we hear God's word and we can respond and, and worship to him that he's so amazing. His character is so, so awesome. So as we, as we just uh, listen, um, let's just reflect on who God is and uh, respond in worship. Our passage today is uh, Job chapter 1 and 2. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all of the people of the East." His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's room, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. 
Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. This is the word of the God of Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, thank you for um, every book, every chapter, every verse. God, that just uh, screams and declares your glory and that reveals your plan uh, to reconcile us and, and uh, just echoes your uh, love and your kindness and illustrates your sovereignty, that you um, are a God above all gods, that uh, you, were, you are working your goodwill and purpose out in the lives of individuals in, and in every uh, corner of the planet. And um, uh, we don't understand your ways, um, but Lord, we do understand that you are good and that you are loving. And uh, we don't have to look uh, beyond the cross of Christ to, to be reminded of that, that, uh, of that great uh, verse that we take for granted, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever should believe in you would not perish but have eternal life. We bless you for that. God, I uh, need you this morning. Um, Lord, I pray uh, that, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, quicken my words. I pray, Lord, that um, there's things that I said last service or in my notes that detract um, from the truth. God, I pray that you would edit those and have me shut my mouth. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take the truth that you want each of us to hear uh, from my mouth um, to the hearts of, uh, of those that are here today, and that we would leave here more resolved to um, worship you, uh, to revere you, to serve you because of who you are, because of your good character, uh, not because of any um, temporal blessings that we have right now. So God, please uh, just go before me in this uh, in this uh, uh, this great book. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. "Amen." Hey, before I move on, I was just I was just standing in the back and looking around, and there are a lot of kiddos in here, a lot of young kiddos, and we're glad they're here. We love kids. We love pregnant mamas. Uh, you know, bring it on. Um, so so they're welcome here anytime they want. Like more. But, but I also think that maybe some of them are in here because, we're, because of our nursery. And I just want to make a plug for nursery workers. That if you're looking for a place to serve that has high impact, um, it's the nursery. Um, that you know, there's not a lot to do in there other than you know, like change diapers, wipe noses, and, and, uh, and don't come and get the parents. Um, I know it's not my calling, but it may be your calling. So if you would pray, pray about that, that would be awesome. And then talk to... Shelby Tallman or Greg Johnson. So, good morning. 
again. Um, there's the Johnsons right there. Hi. Uh, good morning. Uh, if you're part of this church, a special good morning to you, church family. If you're, if you're new with us, if you're visiting, uh, a welcome to you as well. This is, uh, as Gary so well introduced our church, we, we have a, a passion here to see people come to know Jesus, to see people grow in their relationship with Jesus, and then to go and tell others. That's, that's, our, that's our passion. And uh, we desire that God not just be worshipped here through the word and through singing, through fellowship, but that that we would be equipped, each of us, be equipped and encouraged to worship God seven days a week with our, uh, in our workplace, in our homes, with our thoughts, our words, and our actions. So we are, um, we're getting ready to uh, journey through a pretty long book in a short period of time. Uh, we'll be going through the book of Job in the next eight weeks. We'll be finishing it up on Easter. And Pat, Pat Brady, when he heard that I wanted to do this, uh, Pat has been a pastor for longer than a lot of you have been alive. He said, he said, good luck on that one. And so um, I kind of considered that a challenge a bit and decided to do it. Um, and really, the, the reason it came up was not because um, we see a lot of suffering right now in the body or because we hope for a lot of suffering, neither of those. Um, I went to an exposition conference last October, and the, the book that they trained us with was Job. And I thought, wow, what a great opportunity to just dive deep into the book of Job over the last four or five months and then to bring it to bear on our body. So I pray that there would be great dividends and that the ultimate result is that we would be ones who um, worship God for who he is, not just for what he um, does for us and the blessings that he gives us. As a church, we're committed to something called um, expositional preaching, which is when we come to a particular text or portion of the Bible, we let the message of the text inform the sermon not the other way around. Topical messages are okay, but even when we do topical, we want to come to a passage. We want our, the passage to inform what the topic is, not vice versa. But expositional preaching does not necessarily mean verse by verse. Um, and we're going to be doing 42 chapters in eight weeks, so we will not be going verse by verse. Otherwise, you guys will have sore bottoms because we'll be in here for like five to six hours every Sunday. The Bible's a single story. So this type of preaching, expositional preaching, could be done by a message from a large portion of Scripture or from a smaller portion of Scripture, like we've done in the past. Recently, we've taught through 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and the book of Galatians. So my goal is to have our journey through Job finished on Easter, eight weeks. The book of Job is important for us today. It belongs to a group of Old Testament um, books uh, from a genre called wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. And wisdom literature teaches us some things about wisdom. Surprise, surprise. How to live in the world in which we find ourselves. You see, we discovered that the universe that we live in is much more than a natural system of physical laws. And it's also uh, more than a moral universe. Wisdom is having a correct perception and understanding of reality, and then applying that understanding to the way we live. It's understanding the reality and applying that reality to the way we live. The Bible's wisdom literature is not law, and it isn't even primarily about moral lessons. Rather, it's about the way the world works, universally, primarily. It's guidance by which we can navigate relationships, money, business, and pleasure. The book of Proverbs is the, is the most, most well-known um, book of wisdom. And it contains short axioms of how to live in a way that best coincides with the way that the universe works. Generally speaking, that you reap what you sow. That is, that's proverbial wisdom, is that typically the way the world works is that you reap what you sow. If you live wisely, you, your life will benefit. If you live foolishly, you will come to ruin. And then we have the book of Job. Job is a book that, quite frankly, is deeply troubling. Um, and it, it's, uh, yeah, I'll talk more about it in a minute. It, it screams with questions that we only whisper in our hearts. It's a book that shatters the facade of religiosity. It destroys the arguments that we construct for ourselves to give us a sense of security and control. And it reveals to us wisdom that is not found in rules and responses that put God in a box, 
but it is found in living every moment of the day, trusting the one who rules all things. In this book, this book we're going to be given a glimpse of a man who undergoes um, indescribable, heart-wrenching suffering. We're confronted with all of the questions that are so difficult for us to grapple with when faced with our own suffering and the suffering of loved ones. The central message of the book of Job as it unfolds over 42 chapters with the theme or what some call the melodic line that goes all the way through Job is that the answers in our pain are not found in asking why, but knowing who. The answers to our pain are not found in asking the question why, but in knowing who. There's a man named Horatio Alger. Some of you know him. He's the author of the last song that we just sung. And Horatio Alger lived in the 1800s. And he was a successful businessman. And he built, um, he built all kinds of industrial buildings along Lake Michigan. And then the Chicago fire hit. And he lost everything. Every dime he had, all the wealth that he had built, he had lost. In the meantime, he befriended uh, Dwight L. Moody. And Dwight L. Moody was going across the Atlantic to Europe to Great Britain to, to start revivals. And Horatio decided to go over there with his family. But he wanted to take business, care of business in Chicago, so he sent his wife and his four daughters across to, ahead of him to wait. And he got a note back from his wife and said that only I arrived safely. You see, the boat that they were on was, was broadsided by another boat and all four of his daughters perished at sea. And then as he was traveling across the Atlantic later to join his wife, he wrote this song called It Is Well. In the lines that we just sung, he said, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. It is said that he actually wrote this song around the place in the Atlantic where they believe that his daughters perished. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. The blessed assurance? That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Therefore, it is well with my soul. He was a modern day Job. And as I have contemplated this, um, the book of Job, I found myself being a little bit fearful, actually. I found myself being a little bit fearful. There was a, a, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, uh, was, uh, it's, it's actually Tom Harkins, so he wouldn't mind me saying it, uh, was, uh, is the, uh, he launched the Crossway Chapel movement. And he planted a church in Wilmington, North Carolina, and he went up to the Brooklyn Tabernacle, which some of you know of a guy by the name of Jim Cimbala that wrote a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. And while, while Tom was there, he prayed. He prayed that, God, I surrender my family to you. I surrender my wife and my kids. They're not mine. They belong to you. And he got a call that night. That little chatty was playing a game, and he hung himself. His nine-year-old son. And, and, I've, and I've got these superstitious things in my head where it's like, you know what, I, I want to live a life of surrender, but oftentimes I don't know if I can pray the prayer. I don't know if I can say, God, it all belongs to you. Um, have your way with me. Be merciful, be kind, but have your way with me. You see, folks, we live in a culture and we live in a country that I believe that church is based on the retribution principle or, dare I say, the prosperity gospel. I know it's in Nigeria, but I think it's in America. And not just on TBN, but I think in Reformed Evangelical Churches. The retribution principle says this, and it's common throughout the world. It's a principle that states that the good person will receive blessings and the evil person will receive evil. That doesn't always play out, does it? It doesn't always play out. And it's confusing. In Job, this principle, this retribution principle is challenged. So the question is, is how do we make sense of calamity that strikes God's people? How do we understand injustice in the world that we live in? 
Christopher Ashe, in his commentary on Job, says there's two ways of asking questions that confront Job. One of the questions is armchair questions. With Bible in hand, watching other people suffer, and quoting Romans 8.28 with no compassion, no mercy. The other is what he would call wheelchair questions, where we learn to grieve as other people grieve, and we learn that we don't have to have the answers. Really, the only answer that we need to have is to help one another believe that God is who he said he was. And sometimes that just comes in silence, as we're going to see in Job's friends. Christopher Ash continues to say, Job is a fireball book. It is a staggeringly honest book. It is a book that knows what people actually say and think. Not just what they say publicly in church. It knows what people say behind closed doors and in whispers. And it knows what we say in our tears. It is not merely an academic book. And if we listen to it carefully, it will touch us. It will trouble us. And it will unsettle us at a deep level. And you're going, well, thanks a lot. So glad I came. Let's look at chapter 1. Who is Job? At the beginning of, of this beautiful book is an Instagram picture of Job and his family. It's the perfect family. It's the perfect life. It's a story of a human being. It's a story about a man. And I don't know about you, but after being introduced to somebody, sometimes I forget their name. I forget what it is that they told me they do. I forgot their kids' names, their wives' names. But in the book of Job, we need to pay attention. Even though we will be introduced to other characters, there's three friends, there's Zophar, there's Bildad, there's um, uh, Eliphaz, and there's one other guy, young guy, Elihu. We're going we're to see these guys. But, but even though we're going to see these other characters, the human focus of the book is on one man. And this man's name is Job. And right out of the gates, the author of this grand book tells us several things about Job. First of all, his place, his home. It's the land of us. Not Oz, but us. We don't know exactly where us is, but we know it's not in Israel. His story does not tie into any of the known events in Israel's history. In fact, if you examine the history, it probably is during the time of Abraham or before the time of Abraham. It's before, it's before the nation of Israel even came to an existence. His name? Job. There's so many theories about what, the, what Job means. The, the only thing we know for sure is that the way that he got his name Job is that's what his parents named him. We have no genealogy. We know nothing about his family tree. We just know that his name is Job. His character. The text says that he was a man who was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And blameless does not mean without sin. He's a man like us. Women like, he's, he's, he's a part of humanity like us. He's not sinless. He's not perfect. In fact, in chapters 13 and 14, we're going to see that he admits to being a sinner. Blameless means to be genuine or sincere. Job's heart for God matched his outward service. It's the same word as integrity in the Hebrew. We might say that his within is just like his without. We might say that what you see with Job is what you get. Blameless is the opposite of being hypocritic, being a hypocrite. He was upright, it says. This describes how he treated other people. He treated other people like he wanted to be treated. He feared God. To fear God means to have reverence for and a desire to please him. It's a heart that truly worships and serves God. It says he turned from evil. To turn from evil is to repent. So Job is not a perfect man. Only one perfect man ever walked the earth, and his name was not Job. His name was Jesus. But we do know that Job was a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, in the triune God. He didn't know the name Jesus Christ. Job's life and character was a living illustration of wisdom. He lived with integrity. He treated other people well. He loved and served God. And daily he turned from evil. And he was blessed. He had ten beautiful adult children. Seven sons, three daughters. And some of you probably know more about this, but the numbers 10, 7, and 3 are special numbers um, in the Old Testament. He was blessed financially. His bank account was huge. His servants were many. 
And we discovered that he was the greatest man, it says, in all the East. He was the greatest man. We also discovered that Job's success wasn't at the expense of his company, of his, uh, of his family. He was a family man. They, they seemed to be a close family who enjoyed one another. We don't know much about his ten children, other than the sons would hold a feast in the house of the other one um, on their day, it says, and they would invite their sisters. That was good of them, ladies, right, to invite their sisters. We're assuming that maybe the gals were single. We don't know anything about that. Um, this feast day, this day was probably a birthday. It was before the Jewish feasts. We know that Job was a good father who continually interceded for his children. It says, it may be, he sacrificed, he interceded. It says, he says, because it may be that my children, verse 5, have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. You know what? We have no reason to believe that his children were rebel rousers. We have no reason to believe that they had an outward appearance, appearance of godlessness. In fact, they seem to have an outward appearance of godliness. But Job knew that what matters is not the appearance of godliness, but a godly heart. Just, just a side plug, parents with kiddos. Um, manage their outward godliness. Correct them when they're going astray. But do not do that without managing, shepherding, loving, praying for their heart. Because what is of ultimate importance is an inward godliness, a godliness of the heart. Job's life reflected what we would expect from such a blameless, upright life. His life is a natural and right or proverbial consequence of his godliness. It's what we would expect a man like Job's life to look like, would we not? Wouldn't we expect blessing on his life? He's upright. He's blameless. He's a man of integrity. He turns away from evil. He fears God. Should we expect? Should we expect this in our lives? Let's look at verses 6 through 12. In verses 6 through 12, we get a glimpse behind the curtain of the heavenly realm. We get to see the royal throne room of God where the sons of God, which is a reference to angels, come to present themselves before the Lord. And these angels are part of God's council or his uh, heavenly cabinet, if you will. And we see that in different parts of Scripture. We see that in Ezekiel. And the expression that is used here is they came to present themselves or stand before God, which means something like to attend a meeting which one is summoned. They are presenting themselves for duty, and then they go out and do what they've been told to do. That's what angels do. One of the angels is referred to as the Satan, or literally in Hebrew, the accuser. Satan was created by God as, a, as, a, as an angel. Satan fell. We don't know a lot about Satan, actually. We do know that God isn't the author of evil, but we do know that God uses evil for his purposes, and we're going to see that through the book of Job. We're not told whether Satan is a present member of God's heavenly cabinet. Let that one sit in your head for a minute. There's some commentators that would say that Satan is actually part of God's heavenly counsel. And there's others that say that he's simply an intruder. I'm not sure where I'm at on that. God allows the accuser to test Job. God literally um, hands Job, the upright and blameless one, to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth. He doesn't say, if you considered my servant Job, I've been looking to punish him for his bad attitude and his actions. He says, no, have you considered my servant Job? Servant Job is an indicator that he's a genuine follower and believer of the triune God. Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on earth. He is blameless and upright. He fears me and he turns away from evil. The book of Job is not about suffering in general or the sufferings common to humanity. Rather, the book of Job is about how God treats his friends. I'm sorry. 
It's about how God might treat those who are of the faith, not a result of our sin. God gave Satan permission to afflict Job. Satan has no power or authority, and he can do nothing without God's authorization. Nothing. We don't like the idea of God instructing Satan to attack Job, but that's exactly what he does here. If you've got another version of the Bible that says something different, bring it up to me afterwards. It's become normal in the church today to get around the problem of evil by suggesting that God is simply doing his best and we can't blame him if he doesn't manage to arrange everything as he wants. Satan does what he's told, no more, no less. The accuser always acts by divine decree. The one thing we know, as Luther put it, is that Satan is God's Satan. Satan can do nothing without God's permission. Isaiah 45, 7 says this. God says, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all things. And I'm going to remind you through this that God is all-loving. God is all good. God is all just. That his ways are not our ways. That he does things that we will have no idea, really. We say that he works all things for good, Romans 8, 28. We know that he works all things for good. We may not ever see that good in our generation. We may not know that good until we're in heaven. But we can bank on his good promises that he is good and that he is loving. Satan responds to God's offer in verse 9. Satan does admit that Job is one who fears God. Yep, God, he definitely fears you. Uh, But he says, of course God fears you. Who would not fear you, God? You've protected him. You've given him everything he could possibly want. He's got ten kids, seven sons, three daughters, a thriving business. He is respected. He's the greatest man. He's a combination of Billy Graham and Bill Gates, the richest and with the most integrity. Of course he fears you. Of course he serves you. Of course he worships you. Who wouldn't when things are going great? But if you take away, Satan says, if you take away what he has, Satan says to God, he will curse your face. You see, Satan questions why Job serves God. Is it because God is God and worthy of worship? Or is there another reason? It's the main question I have for you this morning. Do you worship God because of who he is? Examine and ask, God, do I worship you because of who you are or because of the way you've blessed me? I don't know how I I can answer that. I don't know if I, honestly, if I can answer that the way I'd like to answer that. Does Job believe that if he honors and worships God, God will bless him? Does Job believe in some way that his children, if, he, if, he, if his children are healthy and successful, he'll worship God? That if he worships God, his bank account will grow? So the Lord tests Job. So the Lord allows the accuser to test Job, and, and an unbelievable, catastrophic event befalls Job. His children are celebrating at the oldest brother's house. This was the day just like any other day. And then, through both human and so-called natural agents, almost everything Job had was lost. His livestock was destroyed. His camels were stolen. His servants were slaughtered. His livelihood and wealth are gone. And as if it couldn't get any worse, in the middle of the feast, a tornado completely destroyed the house and all of his children gone in an instant. In a matter of moments, Job discovered that he had lost all of his wealth, all of his retirement, all of his security, all of his status. And I'm sure he would have given all of that up if he could just have his children back. Now he has to say goodbye and bury not one, not two, but ten, all ten of his children. I can't even imagine. Can't even imagine. In verse 20 through 22, he demonstrates deep grief. He shaves his head. He 
tears his robe. He throws himself on the ground. He is grieving, make no mistake about it, like no man has ever grieved. But then he does something unthinkable. He worships God. He worships with a deep, grief-filled hymn that speaks of his great loss while at the same time speaks of his great confidence in God. You see, we don't have to have a fake confidence in God and not grieve. We're going to see next week in chapter 3, it's a, it's a chapter of lament. There's no hope in that where Job simply laments. He is so broken. And brothers and sisters, I believe that God wants us to grow us into a church that grieves when other people grieve. It's pretty easy, actually, to rejoice when others rejoice, but grieve when others grieve. And Job said this. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Think about this response for just a moment. In the midst of all the loss, all the grief, Job falls down and worships God because why? Because he's God. Because he's God. He worships the God who just acknowledged that he took away everything. At this point in the story, you probably got a bunch of questions. I do. I got all kinds of questions. If you're paying attention, part of you is probably objecting to everything that's going on. I object. You're probably challenging God's goodness and fairness. You're probably wondering at how Job could ascribe all sovereignty and final responsibility to God. The Lord has taken away. And yet he didn't sin. He didn't sin with his lips. He didn't blame God. And if we're honest with the suffering and are honest with the text, there are some deep questions that this raises, and it only gets worse. And can I tell you that if this is not, if this is not causing you to just a little bit to doubt God, would, to doubt God, and ask this question, God, would I still worship you? Would I still praise you? Would I still serve you? Would I still fear you? Would I still revere you the way I do now? You've given me so much. I've got three beautiful kids. I've got three kids-in-laws. I've got almost five grandkids. I've got a great church family. I've got my health. I've got a good paycheck. God, if you took it all away from me, would I serve you and worship you the way I do today? Then. And it's a question that we all need to come face-to-face with. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we see the same dialogue between God and Satan. And once again, the Lord shockingly turns Satan loose on his servant Job. This time, Satan is allowed to strike his bones and flesh. He's able to strike his body. He's not allowed to kill him, though. If it was me, if I was there, I would have pleaded with the Lord, God, please no more. Can you just pick on somebody else? He's lost all of his children. He's lost his dignity. He's lost his business. And then God, again, affirms Job's integrity that he continues to worship and trust God even though, even through great loss. Surprisingly, God takes responsibility for the calamity, actually. If you doubt who's in charge, Satan or God, listen to this in verse 3. God says to Satan, you incited me to ruin him without cause. God didn't say to Satan, you ruined him without cause. He says, you incited me to ruin him without cause. In verse 7 and 8, Satan afflicts Job again. Satan's response is that, well, he still has his health, God. If you take that from him, he will curse you to your face. So God gave Satan the permission. Satan struck Job, gave him open sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his his head. I've got a sister-in-law that's been in bed now for three months. Actually, since August, whatever that is. It's a long time. And she's got bed sores on her legs and her rear end and on her back. And she's so miserable that Job had the equivalent of metastasized cancer from his head down to his feet. And all he could do is sit in the ash heap and scrape the sores with a broken piece of glass. And Job was so disfigured that even his friends didn't recognize him. Then back up to verse 9, there's another trial. Job's wife tells Job to curse God and die. Why don't you just curse God and die? You know, we really can't make any moral judgments against his wife. 
I don't, I don't really ex- wouldn't expect her to respond differently. I think we need to cut her some slack. She's suffering with Job. She lost her kids. She, she lost her security. And now she has to care for a broken, lonely, sick, miserable man. Whatever her motive, whatever her pain, make no mistake though, she is the mouthpiece for Satan here. What, she, what, what Augustine calls her the devil's assistant, Calvin says Satan's tool. Her loss, like his, is unbearable. Her faith in God is shaken. And out of her own despair, she encouraged Job to do what Satan wanted him to do, to curse God. And Job, even in his suffering, he didn't call his wife a fool. He just said that she was acting like one. And then chapter 2, verse 10, Job responds to his wife after she says, just curse God and die. He says, shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The pain, as suddenly as it came, it came like this. Everything gone. Maybe in, the, in, the, in, the, in, in a matter of minutes. Maybe an hour. Maybe a day at the most. Everything he had was gone. And the pain, as suddenly as it came, did not go away as quickly. In fact, it lingered. We're told that, that Job's three friends who are from three different parts of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the earth, actually, I don't know how far, but it wasn't like next door. It probably wasn't a day. It might have been weeks. It might have been months. These friends are from different parts. They're from the north, the south, and the east. They had heard about his calamity. A message had to get to them somehow. He, they'd heard about his calamity. They sent an appointment to Job to set an appointment with him. And then they had to travel there. That Job might have sat there in his pain and his loneliness for weeks, if not months. So, so the little, the little uh, uh, two spaces between those verses could have been several months. And the way they found Job was still sitting in the ashes, still mourning, still silent, still in great pain. In such a pain that they ripped their clothes and shaved their head because they, Job was unrecognizable. They couldn't recognize him. So they just sat with him. They covered themselves in dust and they mourned and grieved with their friend for seven days. So brothers and sisters, here we are. We're left with Job, desperate, broken, sitting in the ash heap, silent, And I've got nagging questions that surround me. Wondering at the goodness of God, the suffering that he allowed his servant to undergo. And we try to figure out what the brokenness of Job has to do with us today. I think what it has to do with us today is that God is going to do whatever he deems appropriate for our good and for his glory. And that might be pain. James wrote about Job in chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. James tells a suffering church, the book of James, the letter of James is written to a suffering church. He tells them that they need to be patient until the Lord comes. God's coming back. That they need to be patient. They need the patience that is a result of faith. A faith that no matter how dark their situations are, that they can endure it because of their faith. He then uses Job as an illustration how God is compassionate and merciful to his children that endure. Are you kidding me? Where in the world do we see God's compassion in mercy right now? We're going to see it. I promise you we're going to see it. In verses 10 and 11, James 5, it says this. An example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness or perseverance of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If you're in the middle of suffering, I had two people come up to me at the last service that are in the middle of some kind of suffering. And if you're in the middle of suffering, if you feel alone, If you are 
experiences silence like Job, I want to encourage you that while you might have more questions than answers, while you might have more sorrow than joy, while you might feel alone in your sorrow, Job doesn't just serve as an example for us. James calls Job a prophet, and Job was speaking of something and someone, excuse me, James was speaking of something and someone greater than himself. While we can look at Job as an example, that's not the primary purpose of Job. You're not just supposed to suck it up and and, and the patience of Job. That's not going to get you there. If you ever hear those words from me, punch me in the face. Over here. Joe, James is called a, calls Job a prophet. He was speaking of something. James was, was speaking of something and someone greater than himself. Well, we can look to Job as an example of the blessing of endurance and as a reminder to hope in the return of the Lord and not in this world. We must be careful not to identify with Job too quickly or too completely. Here's why. Job was the greatest of all men of the East. We don't hold a candle to Job. Chapter 1, verse 8, there's no one like him on all the earth. Chapter 2, verse 3, there's no one like him on all the earth. He holds fast his integrity. There's something really unique about Job, a man who would continue to walk in worship and obedience in the face of the worst that Satan could throw at him. It's something that you and I um, can't claim for ourselves. I'm sorry, as great as you all are. I don't think we can live up to Job's example. If we look at our character, would we say that we're blameless? Would we say that we're without hypocrisy? Would you, that what you see is what you get in your life? If you look at your dealings with others, are you upright, truthful, and seeking the good of others? Do you truly have loving reverence for the Lord that bows in submission to him and moves you to turn from evil continually? That's Job. Get this now. Fortunately, James doesn't just give us, Job is an example to follow, but he says that Job was a prophet. And as a prophet, he spoke of something and someone greater than himself. He pointed forward to the one who would one day do away with all suffering by taking it upon himself. Listen to what Christopher Ash has to say. There is something desperately extreme about Job. He foreshadows one man whose greatness exceeded even Job's, whose sufferings took him deeper than Job, and whose perfect obedience to his father was only anticipated in faint outline by Job. The universe needed one man who would lovingly and perfectly obey his heavenly father in the entirety of his life and death, by whose obedience the many would be made righteous. Praise God for the one who, like Job, was marred beyond all recognition. Praise God for the one who wasn't just covered in boils, but who took God's wrath upon himself so that we would never experience the final pain of death and separation from God. This is the one whom Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 52, and I'm going to read it. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. This is Jesus speaking about Jesus. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred behind human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up, Jesus, he grew up, this is prophecy, for he grew up before him like a young plant and a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. There it is. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and his wounds 
With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We know that Job silenced the accuser and how Jesus ultimately silenced the accuser for all of us. If you know Jesus Christ, there, the accuser has no authority in your life. Yes, um, that he can, he can, uh, God can unleash him on you if God chooses, but Satan can't do what he pleases. Let me ask you this. Do you worship God for nothing? Do you really believe that he is of more surpassing worth than everything you have amassed for yourself, everything that you've been blessed with? Do you really believe he is worth giving up everything for? And I'm going to close on this, Luke 14. Jesus' words, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is saying here is that you don't go home and hate your your spouse and your kids and all that. He says, in comparison to me, everything else is hate. That we are to be willing to follow him no matter what the lot is that he gives us. And I'm going to invite the, the worship team up and we're going to be singing a song that has so much hope, has so much theology. And it goes like this. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me, so he will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. That's you if you know Jesus Christ that you are his delight. Christ will hold me fast, precious in his holy sight. He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. His, his promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Let's pray, or let's sing.